This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Michael McCusker, ACE, and Andrew Buckland. Michael was nominated for an Oscar and won an Ace Eddie in 2006 for Walk the Line. He was nominated for an Australian Screen Editors Award for Australia, and he recently won Editor of the Year by the Hollywood Film Awards for the movie we're talking about today, Ford vs. Ferrari. His other films include Deadpool 2, The Greatest Showman, Logan, The Girl on the Train, and The Amazing Spider-Man. I've interviewed him twice before. Andrew Buckland also won Editor of the Year by the Hollywood Film Awards for this film. His other work includes The Girl on the Train, and work as additional editor on Get On Up and The Wolverine. If you could introduce yourselves, that way people would understand whose voice sound goes with whose name. My name is Andrew Buckland. And I am Mike McCusker. And we are the, the editors, editors of, of Ford vs. Ferrari. <laughs> is it Ford V or Ford Versus? I like to say V, but it's actually Versus. It's Versus, yeah. We just it, it, it just didn't want the S period. It's, it's graphically more pleasing. Without I think the, so. S, the S period. Yeah. Watching it, the editing made me want my old stick shift car. Back. Well, then we. Yeah, I never thought of it that <laughs> way. We're <laughs> gonna sell cars. Yeah. Selling cars. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna sell manual cars. That's what they do. Um, I've talked to a couple of people recently about narration in film. And the last two people I talked to about it actually said there was no narration in the script. It was added later. What, uh, what was the deal with narration in this? Well, it's, it's pretty sparse, so it's only in these two. So it's sort of bookend. The bookend. And it was actually, it was in the script. And it was in the script not as narration. It was in the script as an actual standalone scene that we took out. Because these bookends that, that were conceived, just didn't, it just didn't play right. It was sort of tangential and didn't feel organic to the rest of the movie. But what is being said is. So we just used it that way. And what were those scenes originally? How, how did they play out, or what were the visuals? The concept of it was that the whole movie is actually almost told in, in, in a flashback. It's a recollection of his friend. And he's at a crucial point after his death where he's trying to figure out the meaning of what just happened, their enterprise and their friendship, which I think is a great idea. It just, it just didn't play that way. It, it, it played, played confusing. Uh, I really love the visuals in the film as well. I mean, some of the shots are just absolutely gorgeous. Were there times when you just said, oh, to hell with story make, st- storytelling. I just need to put in this gorgeous shot. <laughs> you mean abandon storytelling and just use the shot? No, not abandon shot. it. Not Certainly not abandon it. I never felt like you guys abandoned the storytelling. But there's just times when you're like, I've got to put this shot in. It's just too beautiful not to have in the movie. <laughs> So you luxuriated in the cinematography. Yes, I did at times. That's great. We should, you've got to do a whole other podcast with Faden. Faden. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a shot early on that I saw, and it's actually, it, it doesn't strike you as this great piece of cinema, but I, I really love it. And it's like when Bill, the uh, inspector at Willow Springs, has gotten his dressing down, and, um, and then Shelby and Carol continue to talk. And there's this great shot where... Uh, Christian is framed to the right of the screen and Carol walks in from the left and it's just this beautiful profile of our two 
heroes. And I saw that shot and I was like, I got to use it this way. Like he's got to walk into the shot where they share a completely balanced frame Mm -hmm. because to me it was emblematic of their relationship. And I also just thought it looked beautiful. You know, one guy's wear, they're both wearing cowboy hats. <laughs> it's just, it felt Western in a way. So I really liked that shot. It's probably not a shot that people would say, well, there's the big, there's the beautiful cinematography, but it struck me that way. It wasn't hard to use. They're in the middle of a, of a conversation. So it doesn't feel like I made any sort of like, uh, uh, I wasn't jamming it in there. Um, I don't know whether you guys think about this concept they, that I've, seen described about eye trace of where you're leading the audience's eyes and in that scene at the beginning where the where Ford kind of walks onto the factory floor and shuts it down I felt like the eye trace was almost perfect on every shot is that something you guys concern yourself with or is it more organic than that it was more organic I think there were a number of scenes actually I saw them later where where my eyes were drawn in the frame, when you guys cut, my eyes were in the exact same spot for the next shot. I am, I can say for myself, I'm super sensitive to that. Yeah, I agree. I it's like, too. you know, uh, I, want, I know that I'm sitting there wa- cutting the movie as if I'm watching the movie. You know, which is, uh, you know, yeah. it's a it's a weird, I mean, I don't think it's a revolutionary concept. I think other editors would comment the same way. But because I because I kind of cut that way and think about that constantly, I'm thinking about what do I want to see next? And if I'm cutting to a frame and it's not, if the subject matter in the next cut isn't where I think it should be, I, right. I, I get tossed out of the shot. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. And sometimes I'll, it, it, you know, I, I need to cut <clears> to the <throat> shot that's available to me and it's and it's still bumping me. So, you know. We'll play one of our editorial tricks, you know, resize it a little bit, move it a little bit so that your eye is kind of going to the part of the frame you really want people to focus on. So, yeah, I think there's uh, there's definitely an intention to do that. But, you know, a lot of that is also just uh, great photography. <laughs> you exactly. Know, I mean, we didn't really have to do that much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I would think that in the race scenes that the sound design played a big part. What kind of you know, sound tools did you guys have, like a little sound kit of engine noises and revs and brakes and all that kind of stuff that when you were making visual cuts, I'm assuming even at the assembly or early editing stages, you were also really trying to make those work with audio as well. Yeah, we were, well, we were fortunate to have the sound team, well, Don Sylvester actually starting very early in the editing process. It was the first show we did with Jim where we cut in 5-1. It was great to have Don on early and he, when we were working on a scene and we would complete a sort of a picture cut on the scene, he would very quickly help us put sound to that scene and give us the right sound. They, they wouldn't be the, the actual car sound, the true car sounds of a GT40 or a Ferrari. But it would be good enough for us, for you, for one, to get a sense of how the, the flow of the scene would go. And he was really, really, it was very beneficial to have him start early with us. Did that sound ever change things for you when you heard the sound that you felt like you needed to change picture or no? Oh, oh yeah, sure. You no, know, sir. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, there was no way to really cut these, the, the race sequences with sound at the same, you know, in, in, con, in, in parallel. No. So, you know, for me, I just cut, I cut, the racing's MOS. And then and then sat down with, you know, Don and spotted them and we talked about what we we're gonna do and he he provided us uh, tracks. Because we were cutting in five one, we decided that we were gonna de- develop a plan of essentially he was gonna provide us a series of stems. And we didn't want to bake everything in together on like a couple of five point one stems. So we decided that we'd do crowds on a stem and car interiors on another stem and car exteriors on another stem. So it allowed us to recut and reuse those stems. Because I hate to be in a position where, um, you know, we recut a scene and I got to throw it through sound again just to make it, just to tone it out. The way that we developed our kind of breakdown of tracks, which we discussed early on, allowed us to use these tracks for a pretty good amount of time until we started to get in more developed sounds and actually the real cars. Um, so that helped a ton, and that was um, hand in glove with with what Don was doing. As far as cutting the scene initially, I just I was going for the picture, 
I was yeah. going for the picture purely yeah. and then um, handing it to him. I mean, one of the a great example of how these stems worked was very late in the game, uh, as we were getting all the footage in for Le Mans, they went out and shot Daytona. <laughs> so we were just buried in race footage all at the same time. Two of the biggest races in the movie were shot back to back. So I, um, I took over Daytona. I had been doing Milan. I took over Daytona. I cut that scene. I cut it completely MOS. And then I handed it actually, instead of Don, because Don was de dealing with trying to catch up with Lamont, I handed it to Drew, who had some free time. And I said, just use the stems from the Lamont stuff and tone out and basically create the race stuff for Daytona. And it worked like gangbusters. And that's what our temp tracks were for a while until Don got a chance to really, you know, do dedicated sound for that. That was the entire point of, of setting up the STEM strategy was to be able to reuse stuff and not have it be just specifically for just a one-off. Right. We could yeah. repurpose those sounds in yes. other races. Yep. So the production sound that you were using was probably exclusively dialogue or no? No, yeah. no, well, no, I mean, for Willow Springs, the race in Willow Springs, actually, they had a live mic during the racing, and, and the first cut of, this first sound cut of that race was the production engines. They were the wrong engines, but they were technically, engines. but they were engines, and they sort of allowed you to experience, you know, the car. And so that, I remember the first cut of that was, was strictly production sound before, before Don could get his hands on it and do a pass on it. Uh, was that the race where uh, the sound got dropped out in Ken Miles? I mean, obviously intentionally, he's racing yeah. and then he kind of gets into the zone. Can you yeah. tell me about that decision or, you know, uh, why you did it, what the thought was, how it was done? I'd love to say that it was our idea. Yeah, it wasn't our idea. <laughs> and I'd love to say that it was Jim's idea. And it wasn't, it wasn't his Jim's idea, idea. right? No, no. Wow. It was, it was Christian Bale's idea. Christian Bale. He, he, we have, the, you know, he understood the script. He had seen the movie and, you know, we kind of dropped, you know, we move into that space again at the end of the movie um, at um, Le Mans when he decides to slow down. And he came up with this idea of like, well, why, why don't we, why don't we try to seed that out in the other races yeah. to show the concentration of his character? And uh, we just looked at each other and said, that's a fucking great idea. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. So you know, well, we kind of be we kind of started it in the very first opening scene with Shelby driving yes, true, in did, yeah. in That's you know right. the opening scene of the movie, where he sort of there is a sense of going inward and he's hearing the voice of the doctor kind of like peeking through. It was a response from that because it's an idea that we start there and we of course end the movie that way with Miles' death. There is sort of an internal feel of that for that scene and of course the the moment where he decides to slow down. And I think we just there was this idea of let's develop this more throughout yeah. the movie. When you're working with guys, you can come in and look at a movie and not look at it just from whether or not their performance is working and look at it as a movie, um, it's like, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty great. You yeah, know what I mean? Like great. Christian was just like, they both, both Christian and Matt were really tuned into like the, the filmmaking. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. and, um, and that was, that was just one of those ones like, yeah, of course we have to do that. We have to figure that out. Yeah. It's the same way we developed, we developed that same moment in, in Daytona. When right, he exactly. when when we yeah. go into his face and we we yeah. take all the sound away, I mean that was once we once we applied it, we were like, oh, we can do this in Daytona. I mean that wasn't written to do that. No. We just created that in Daytona um, with you know the inspiration from what Christian had said, and it, and it works because it basically it's like it's it's the racer's mind. It allows for a moment the audience to experience what it is, what where their focus is, and it also it, so we're not only portraying it. We're talking about it. I mean, he talks to his son about it on the tarmac at, at the airport. And so it all is resonant and organic and feels absolutely right for the movie. Uh, let's talk a little bit about spotting um, music. There are a couple places. One, in, I can't remember where I wrote this down, but choice to bring in music near the end of the race instead of all the way through. Can you talk about that decision or... What makes you feel like you need to bring in music at a certain point? Drew cut that sequence, so I think he can talk about it specifically, but in general with Jim, and one of the sort of aesthetic choices that Jim, Drew, and I share, and also the, our music editor, Ted Kaplan, is we, 
we are for the most part allergic to music that leads the scene it yeah. drives us to be really blunt bash it i don't like it <laughs> jim doesn't like it it's just you know it, it if, if your scene is working then the music it to me is always much more satisfying if it's developed out of a out of the character and is not cueing you to feel something right. before the scene has actually begun. Right. So that's that's our starting off point, not only with this movie, but if you look at Dim's work, you know, over the years, that's the way this the spotting, we find the spotting. That's where we kind of default to. Yeah, I think in that Willow Springs scene, I think the where the music comes in at the point when we realize that Miles is catching up to the lead car and is, you know, is really the, the two remaining cars in the lead. And there's this sort of, there's this, the, the battle between the two cars. And so the music is generated, it comes out of that moment, that excitement, as opposed to like beginning the scene, like this is going to be an exciting rice, uh, race and here's the music to, it, it, it has this, for me personally, it has this opposite effect of like actually disengaging me. Like I'm not really participating in this race. And when there's when there's music applied that way, and I think when it's it organically comes out of a true experience of like oh it's an, this is this is actually an exciting moment, and the music is generated from that moment. I think it really adds to the to, to the experience of that excitement and pulls you in even further as an audience. And there's always I've talked to a couple of people that are always joking that in the mix, you know, the composer. And the sound effects guys, the sound design guys are like, they're always fighting for who gets to be loudest. And in right. those races, man, the engines are so important. The sound effects are way more, they're the music of those scenes. Yeah, they are. We work with um, Ted Kaplan, who is, uh, you know, the music editor, and he works closely with Marco Beltrami. He's on almost as early as Don is doing the sound design. So we're developing the music track very early. It's great to have him involved. It's great that we have a studio that supports that, that allows us to like, you know, have, have these guys working early. I mean, it's not such a new idea. There's a lot of front-loaded processes right now, but um, you know, these guys really early. I mean, we were getting them at the top of production. They were there from almost the very beginning. Yeah. Ted's background is he's a musician himself, and he also came from sound design. So he's got a very, very acute understanding of you know where the bandwidth is um, and how to share music, and he's very capable of communicating that to the composer. And again. Marco Beltrami, I mean, he's done, you know, Jim's, a bunch of Jim's movies. The one thing I keep telling people is, you know, this movie is about friendship and it's about camaraderie and it's about these two guys engaged in, in achieving this this goal. I think it's actually, it's it's what we're doing. It's what we're doing as a crew. We're all very good friends and we've worked together a long time and um, and there's great affection and respect for each other and we, we, we love working together and it's, it's, it's rare. I mean, this crew has been together for a long time. Don has done every movie John, uh, Jim has done for 15 years. I've cut Jim's movies for the last 15 years. Ted's been on for the last 15 years. Marco's done like, you know, four of his last six movies or five of his last yeah. six movies. So, you know, we all know each other very well. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Uh, Cause you have been, you know, as you said with James for, 15 years now. How does that help? What's the difference between working with someone with that kind of relationship and working with somebody new? Just trust and getting to know aesthetic. I mean, like, you know, that, that, that stuff has been established. So we, you know, the trust is there and we understand each other's aesthetic. So, you know, when you go work with somebody you haven't worked with before, that's a, that's a, you start over. It's a, it's a new thing, which is what makes the career exciting. You know, you get, it's, you know, you get to go and, and, and have a different relationship. But, you know, there's also this other thing where it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The trick is not to let it get stale, and it hasn't gotten stale. We've, we've, we, we challenge ourselves, we challenge the movie. We're all challenging the movie all the time. Jim's challenging it, we are challenging it, we, we question it, we actually, you know, sometimes joke about it, make fun of it, just in a way to like keep it like, try to keep our, uh, our objectivity. You know, among other things, Ted is actually a, a screenwriter and a novelist. Right. <laughs> so, yes, yes, so he's yes. kind of the full package in terms of uh, in terms of the cinematic experience. So we're all we all approach it from a 
a, I would say a kind of broad perspective. It's not like Ted's like that, this narrow perspective on like just guarding the music or Don is just right. guarding the vis the sound effects. Everybody talks about the movie in general, right. you know, and talks about, you know, how the scenes work or gives, you know, has ideas about the editing. It's just mutual respect. I don't get defensive about that. Right. I might get annoyed, but I don't get, a, <laughs> I, don't get I don't get, I don't get defensive, but, yeah. um, it's, you know, and they don't get defensive when I have things to say. So everybody's right. commenting on each other's work. And yeah. and it's one of the reasons why I think that we all want to continue to work, work together. together. Not to mention the fact that Jim picks really good projects. So yeah. that's, that's another thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, there's a scene where uh, Iacocca and Ferrari uh, kind of get into uh, an argument. Uh, it's kind of a, the climax of that relationship early in the movie. Uh, and there's a lot of overlapping dialogue. Is that something that you guys had to create the overlapping dialogue, or did did they overlap their dialogue? And you had to cope with that. They they overlapped their dialogue, and they it wasn't problematic actually because it, it it was the true experience of that moment. How any moment like that would occur, and people are talking over each other, and there was a moment that was a little tricky. Now thinking about it, it's when. Um, uh, Enzo is speaking in Italian to Ayacoca, and the translator is speaking as well to translate for, for Ayacoca. Uh, that was the only trick to sort of like carve out a little um, uh, space for that to sort of happen and feel natural. That was the only uh, difficult moment for that. That was the, the rhythms of that were tricky. Yeah. Because you didn't want to leave too much room, right? No, exactly. I didn't cut that scene. I just, I watched them cut it and it's great. I didn't touch that scene and it's just like, it's a great scene, but it was, you know, the first cut of it was great and then Jim wanted to tighten it. He wanted to tighten it. He wanted to tighten it so that like you got this kind of the energy of like, oh, the emotion rising which is difficult because you're actually dealing with like three people talking, not just exactly. two. Um, and, and in the scene, actually, the original construction of it, the translator always spoke after Enzo. So she was translating for him at all times. And there was a moment when Jim, I remember Jim said, well, we, I don't think we need to do that all the time. Once, once we've established that once, we understand, you know, basically how that works. So we don't have to lean into that all the time. And that helped us to really sort of tighten that scene. Yeah, but that, that's exactly what I thought would be difficult in that overlapping dialogue. It seemed like a, a tricky scene to, to cut. One of the things that I, I'm really interested in, because when I put music in scenes in the assembly, you know, you're usually working on a scene that's not connected to any, to the next or previous scene. But there's a bunch of scenes where music carries from one scene into the next. Uh, can you talk about kind of how, how or when that happened? That Did you have that music in one scene and dragged it into the next? Or do you not have any music in them? And when they went together, you said, let's, let's uh, have music carry. Well, that was, that's, that's where having Ted on early is extremely helpful. I really love to pick music. I really love to try to find the sound of the movie musically, um, and I like to be a part of that process, but this was such a complex movie that we didn't really have the time. Because, you know, it's, it's, you have to listen to so much. And it was also, it's also really, if you were to like, take all the sound out or just listen to the sound, the music soundtrack of this movie, you'd be like, well, how does this, how is this all the same movie? <laughs> it actually, there's a, there's like three distinctive different sort of almost genres of music. There's kind of this kind of, I would say, rockabilly surfer rock that's that's playing our, our heroes in the Southern California atmosphere uh, and um, milieu. There's a more kind of uh, slightly jaunty, almost loungy jazz feeling that's playing uh, Detroit and the Motor City. And the kind of um, you know intrigue of the executive game playing and politic, mm -hmm. and then there's the score that that grows into what is the racing score and becomes much more, a little bit heavier, more rhythmic. We didn't know it was going to be that way. Ted didn't know it was going to be that way. It took time to find that. So having Ted on, it allowed us to to find that in I think a pretty organized fashion. As far as playing things out more as a sequence of music rather than just individual scenes. You know, I've been stuck in that situation before where I've temped out scenes and then I have to put the scenes together and now I've got a problem because there's like music shifts that aren't anticipated. Um, in this movie, because we had Ted on early, we 
just cut the scenes and didn't worry about that. And then we found, and then once we cut, we cut enough together, that's when we handed to Ted. Like I wouldn't just hand Ted a, an individual scene. I, I, when I felt like I had a section of scenes together, and I think that Drew can speak to this also, that's when we said, okay, this is a good enough section to like hand to Ted that he's got enough real estate to work with to really create a, a holistic sound throughout. And in this movie, it's more prone than it is in other movies because it's kind of an ensemble piece. And there's a lot of different stories working together. So, it, it, you know, we didn't endeavor to try to find a musical cue for everything. Uh, there's a funny fight scene that I think has been in most of the trailers or people have probably seen. I love the effort sounds in that. Did Was that actual production track or did they go back and go, we just need a bunch of guys that sound like they're having a stupid non-fighter guy fight? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was mostly after. That was a tricky sequence. It was a tricky little scene to cut, and it was recut a few times. It was it was Don Don Sylvester who was saying, "This is going to work once we get some ADR in there. Yeah. Once we bring him in to do looping." And Jim was never really fully satisfied with that scene. We kept kind of cutting it shorter and shorter. And then finally, they went into looping and, and did the looping and put in the loops, and it was like it just changed the scene. Yeah, it just changed the scene. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some visual stuff that's funny, but what they're saying to each other and the efforts and whatnot is what makes that that scene work really, really well. Yeah. Um, and and it's it was tricky in terms of the edit because it was really a freeform fight. I mean, they they had like extraordinarily loose choreography, and and it's funny. <laughs> As I was cutting it to realize that, like, you know, I had Batman fighting Jason Bourne in a scene where they're like, there's all this grab assery, like, completely anti fight fight. And one of the things Jim, you know, to his credit is he doesn't ever want to wink at the audience and say, isn't this funny? So when they shot it, they shot it straight. There was not a whole lot. They weren't they weren't trying to be funny. Um, the funniness just comes out of the fact, I think the funniness comes out of the legitimate feeling that like these these are two friends who are frustrated with each other and uh, are just taking out each other, but don't really want to hurt each other. And somebody asked me, what well, those dailies must have been hilarious. I said, no, they weren't really, they weren't really hilarious because yeah. they weren't trying to be funny. Yeah. So. I thought a lot of the humor was from the efforts and the sounds that I was not, I, I would have been shocked if you'd told me that was production sound, to be honest. I, I loved it, and the audience it was it, it drew a great reaction uh, when that uh, scene uh, played last night. I want to ask about uh, deciding to do. It's not really a oneer, but it's pretty close to it. Um, there, I just have this written down as deciding to do a talk about high risk as a oneer. I think it's the two guys in an airplane hangar. Oh right, right, right. It's right. It's right yes. after. It's right after the car is blown up. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually designed, which is a, a fancy word for saying there was, it was no intended. other coverage. There was no other coverage. <laughs> there was one shot designed. Yeah, meaning no coverage. No coverage. <laughs> um, I think there were eleven takes of that. No coverage. That's very interesting. And was that truly just one take, or did you guys do a split or anything like that? Like no, nope, that. that was the that was one take. Unmanipulated. I mean, this is where Jim understands, so understands the format that he's working in, and understands who he's got sitting there in front of him. It's yeah. like those two guys are fucking great. I mean, it's like it's just it's like I'm. Why am I gonna? Why are any of us on the other side of the camera gonna get in the way of two great actors having a scene like that? Exactly. It's just there's no reason to, including Jim. He's not invading. He's just allowing these guys to like have the conversation. I think it's why, you know, actors want to work with Jim. They actually actually get to act for long stretches. It's not yeah. just PC, you know? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about Henry Ford II in the race car sequence, because that is just fantastic. We call that the um, Ford Joyride. Yeah, that was great. I mean, it was just, you know, Jim got great actors for this movie. I mean, everybody is inhabiting the characters in ways that, yeah. like, you just, it, it doesn't feel like anybody's acting. <laughs> it just feels like people are just, being themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for Matt's case, he just seems <laughs> to inhabit the character in a way that I don't even see Matt in the movie. I just, I feel, I feel that I'm watching Shelby. But that scene in particular, it just, you know, the trickiest enough, the trickier part of it was the parallel cutting at the top of the scene before the actual joyride begins, you know, with, uh, you know, BB being locked into the, uh, into the office. That was a scene that was, as far as the actual drive was going, the, the tricky part was 
getting the drive right and really working the sort of slalom part with the barrels that was out on the tarmac because you know of course all those barrels are, are digital and you know when it, everything out there it was just they shot on a wide open space and we had to add it after the fact that was a kind of second unit handoff with first unit and the first unit driving stuff of the our, of our guys it wasn't exactly matching that so it was a little tricky to sort of you know in terms of the slalom work but we figured it out and I think it works great. And you're so invested in what the characters are doing. It's not, I mean, if we've got people going, well, that doesn't work right because the background's not moving right, then we already lost. But, you know, I, I people are very satisfied with that scene and, and I really am happy with it. And then when it's over and he, and he burst into tears just to stay out of the way, not to make any cuts, just like, let it be. Yeah, exactly. Just let that bleep play. Yeah. The best cut is not, not cutting. Not cutting, you know. To see his... Henry Ford, the actor's Henry Ford II's uh, face as that emotion wells up within him is fantastic. That you you know it's great that he was able to perform it that way that you could not have to cut it too. Yes. Talk to me about intercutting Lamont with uh, the home, the stuff with the family watching. Um, was that done as scripted, or did you find you needed to change some of that intercutting and? And oh, you know, now is when we need to see the family. Can you talk about the difference between scripted and and non? That whole sequence. I mean, I, I I'm I'm fond of telling people that that's a, that the movie is actually a four act movie. Um, you know, that Le Mans itself is its own act. I mean, it's thirty minutes of racing. It's thirty minutes of a race. We understood very early on that the movie that that sequence was just going to be incredibly complex to try to piece together and figure out in in kind of a theoretical way. So that's where we deployed most of our previs process was to figure out that sequence and to figure out when actually when and how to find the rhythms in terms of doing the intercutting. You know, so I was on the movie very early. I was on the movie like a, a two, almost two and a half months before they started shooting because I was working with the previs team into, and Jim in developing that sequence uh, because that was our moneymaker, you know? I mean, our, we were all very cognizant very early on that like we had to, we couldn't talk about Le Mans for like, you know, you know, almost two hours and then not deliver on the promise. Right. And, you know, and the trick of delivery on the promise is making something exciting enough without being boring and redundant. <laughs> you know, we couldn't make a racing, which was just all about like going around the track. And Jim was very, very aware of that. So uh, developing it in previous allowed us to figure out where we were thin on story, add some plot where we didn't have it and figure out the inner cuts to the home and figure out where we needed to go into the pit. And uh, not to mention just developing how the actual race shots were gonna work. It actually became a roadmap for our production units to go out and shoot the racing. They hewed very close to what we were doing in previs. It wasn't just theory. Once the actual footage came in, we just started placing it in what we had developed in previs. The trick at that point is, did we get it right in previs? And we found that we pretty much did. Like the, the cuts to the pits were what was developed in previs. Where he went to the house was where we had planned to go to the house and the kid. So that's, that's kind of a testament to the modern cinema and how you shoot these sequences. I mean, in the past, you just shoot all this stuff and figure out how you're gonna do the you know, cut be, you know, after the fact. But if we had shot it that way, we'd still probably be cutting the sequence today. It's a great example of previs being a tool to help you make the production schedule and the post-production schedule. But having said that, I think it's absolutely integral that a that the picture editor is involved in the previs process and you know at that point and Jim understands that too. That's why he wanted me there and told the studio I had to be there and I was. So that, that was going to be what my next question, which is how do you approach these race scenes with all this footage, I've cut documentary car race footage and it, you just have a ton of random footage that you've got to piece together. But it sounds like it was much more planned out. Well, Le Mans was. The other two races weren't. The other, th I would say, maybe you could say two and a half races, like like the opening of the movie. Well, yeah, that wasn't, yeah. That, was, that wasn't planned out so much. Willow Springs, actually, in a lot of respects, was some, was some of the more challenging stuff because it was just two units going out and kind of shooting in a more traditional way and trying to figure out how to, how to bring shape to that sequence. Yeah. You know, you have only so much time and so many assets, and, and Jim decided to, like, if he was going to, as I said, deliver the goods, it was going to be Le Mans that he really had to work out. Well, on those earlier races, what was the approach? How did you 
try to build those scenes? Was it just creating selects from great moments that you saw? Yeah, I think, uh, especially the Willow Springs race, I think, as Mike said, they shot in a more traditional way in terms of like, let's just cover this race. Let's get as much as we can. There are maybe specific moments that we want to include in the race, like specific beats. We'll get those. So basically out of that footage, we worked on creating an experience of like a full day's race. It took some time to figure that out. There were a lot of selects. There was a lot of like combing through the footage, finding great shots of the car, of uh, Miles, you know. In the scene, he's he's yelling to, to a driver next to him, Bob Bondurant. He's telling him to like watch for that, you know, corner. And that was something that wasn't necessary. That wasn't scripted, I don't believe. That was something that um, Christian Bale came up with on that day, that he was going to yell and scream at the other drivers, and which was great. And then, and it was like using that material, finding the right moment to have Miles do that. Was it selects, or did you find that you needed to break things up in subclips and put them in bins where you could see them? They did shoot material of Shelby. Shelby was in the pits. He was talking to that reporter, and he was in the crowd picking up a wrench, and there were crowd shots, and it was figuring out those beats. And then around those beats, you have Miles. And so what is Miles going to do at this specific time to elicit this reaction from the crowd? Once we sort of established that flow, that rhythm, within those sections between the, between the pits and the audience reaction, then within those moments, you go and you select the great moments, the great shots, you build a moment of, of him like overtaking that car and then the crowd reacting to it. And then when we come back, we have the internal moment and then the car blows up, you know, and then that's another break, which is a great opportunity to sort of have a little time jump moment where we go to the flags and we establish like time has passed a little bit, the race is continuing, which is the sort of the third act of that scene, whereas finally Miles is like reached, like is, is neck and neck with the lead car and that's the end of the, the that racing se- section. And one of the interesting concepts that you brought up is that the scene has acts to it. Yes. Does it that does. help you compartmentalize some of those longer scenes that you go, okay, I'm going to work on the first act or the second act or the third yeah. act? Especially, I mean, if it's a dialogue scene, it's a dial, it's it's a conversation. Yeah. But if it's something that's <laughs> more free form, do you yes. break it up? Do you compartmentalize things? It's very helpful to think that way. Yeah. And that's, you know, look, when you're putting the scene together, uh, any scene like that together the first time, and it's not, it's, a, it's loose like that, you know, sometimes you're tasked with creating the structure. Yes. And when you're tasked with, with, cre- with creating the structure and you feel good about it, the next sort of hair-raising moment is showing it to the director and seeing if he agrees with that structure. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, nah, that's not the structure I want. It's like, oh, God, okay, uh, okay. back to the drawing board. So um, those are always the scenes that cause me the most anxiety yeah. because it's like, I know I like it, uh, the way I got <laughs> right. it, but I don't know if he's gonna like it or she's gonna like it. Right. And I hope they like it. Um, yeah. Le Mans and Daytona. I can't even talk about Le Mans that way because Le Mans was actually shot so specifically. But Daytona, I've talked to you about this in the past, Steve. I don't really like to use select reels. I really don't. I, I try to stay away from them because I feel like when you go through raw footage and pick a bunch of selects and put them into a timeline. Two things happen. One, you get sort of like focused on on the select timeline and you don't reconsider the stuff that was in the actual dailies. And you kind of make this, whether uh, at least, you know, subconsciously on a level, it's like, I already picked the best stuff. It's like, that's not really the case as you're cutting the scene and things develop in a different way. It's like, okay, great. So everything I thought was going to be meaningful before I ever started cutting is kind of now not meaningful. And if I don't force myself back into the dailies, then I'm only, I'm not I'm not necessarily picking the best stuff anymore. The way I like to work is I take great pains to set up my bins. Like I don't have my assistants organize my dailies and bins. I don't do it. I, they'll hand it to me as kind of just everything in a bin, and then I'll break it down. And I'll yes. break it down depending on what kind of scene I'm cutting or or the complexity of the scene. I'll break it down into beats yes. of the scene that I beats. see the beats of the scene, yeah. or I'll or I'll break it down in sort of screen direction. Mm-hmm. Or I'll break it down in in shot sizing. Yeah, depends on which way I, I, I just decide to attack the scene. 
Um, and the only time I really go into creating select reels is when I'm, I've got some particular piece of action that has been shot a lot. Yes. And then I can get through all of the, and I can see which I, which one I feel is the best, or I can review it with the director really quickly. But I also mark up my dailies like crazy. Put a, put a ton of markers on everything. Yes, that's so I, I agree. Around, that's so I, I can get around to stuff very, very, very easily. Yeah. But I found, and I've only come to this having cut for a while, where when I pick selects, I would like, okay, here are my selects, and I start cutting in, cutting the scene. As I said, I was like, oh wow, the scene just pivoted in a different direction. Let me go back to my select reel. It's like, well, I didn't pick anything now that I'm thinking of the scene that way. So now I can right. go back to dailies. I feel like it hems you in too much, at least for me. I follow the same method actually. When I say selects reels, I was thinking of, oh yeah, I put my markers within a take. I've selected great moments within that take, but I don't subclip them out and put them in a bin. And are you just hitting a marker where you where you see something visually, or are you actually uh, labeling those markers and using a marker window to say, oh, here's you know, uh, rounding this turn at White House or passing somebody or? It's actually you you brought up occasionally, the, occasionally, yeah, yeah sometimes. Yeah. I mean that's a great that's a great because when I first constructed, I first broke down the scene for Willow Springs, the the Willow Springs track. There are specific numbered turns which are famous. And so I, I initially organized the, the, um, my bins in terms of like the different numbered turns, like number nine, you know, and put everything associated with number nine. And that's how I originally kind of organized it. And then I stopped doing that and, and I began to reorganize it in terms of the beats that, I've, that I wanted to sort of incorporate in the film. So I reorganized it basically. So you're, are you subclipping all those moments? Because I would think maybe a camera chases a car th- through an entire lap. So then are you breaking them down by subclips? No, I've, within each take, I've, I've watched the whole take. I've marked the, the moments uh, within that take. And so I can, I can go back to it quickly. So if you're looking for turn nine, you can go to a marker for turn nine. Yes. Totally interesting. Just a kind of g- film grammar question. How much do you guys think specifically about the lens the size of the frame as grammar or how much do you really just go, Hey, it's much more organic than that. It's the feel that I have when I look at this shot. I think you used a great word. Organic. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when you're in a scene and you're in a close, for example, and you're in a moment, a very emotional moment or, uh, between two characters to, to go wide, it just feels wrong. It feels like you don't want to, this is not the place to be. You still want to stay close to these characters. It's it's I guess it's organic that way. You know when you're when you're feeling and seeing a scene, you you, you respond to it a certain way. You, I respond to it more intensely when I'm like if the if the framing the size of the frame corresponds with my emotion uh, emotional response to the scene. I don't know how any other way to talk about it um, other than that. Well, I'm very, in drama scenes, I'm very, very uh, sensitive to shot sizing in terms of being consistent when you're working across several takes. Depending on the filmmaker and the cinematographer, it can change. It, 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 it's different. There are some filmmakers and cinematographers, once they go in and, sh- and establish their shot sizing, they just kind of lock it down and stay there. So no matter where, when you're cutting, you're always in that space. Jim and Faden have a more more of a live frame, so they they they're consistent in terms of being in you know being in close when they need to be in close. But it's not always consistent take for take. It's just a, it's just the cameras in in the space with them. It's almost it's got a liveliness to it, which I really appreciate. But sometimes that creates a problem because you're like, okay, I've gone to the other take to find the better shot delivery and suddenly now I'm wider. And so that shot sizing throws me as an editor um, because it's like, why am I pulling out at a dramatic moment? And it might not even be a dramatic pullout. It's just a little little bit looser shot. So that's where that's where I'll take the liberty of like resizing the frame a little bit and, and making it more consistent with the with the previous take. So on that level, that's the, that's kind of the way I, I work. As far as, you know, what Drew was speaking of is like, you know, what's your strategy in terms of uh, getting in and out of scenes and going master or medium close? I don't normally like to get into scenes off of masters. I like to jump into the middle of whatever is there. It's kind of like the idea of dramatic structure for a script. It's like how deep into the story can you start? And it's I feel that way about scenes, too. It's like, how can I jump into the middle of a scene? How late can I get into it? and still then tell the story and then show some scope later on in the scene. 
in a place that's either somebody moving through space or dramatically demanding you that you you come out and show and show space. That's how I usually attack scenes. And sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I have to go traditional, but that's the way I'll attack a scene. But you're not even talking about trying to cut a bunch of lines out of the beginning of the scene. You're saying visually speaking to approach it as if you're in the middle of the scene. That's interesting. There's a great scene um, I call the going to war scene. I don't know what you guys called it, Um, but it was when they basically bring Shelby in basically to fire him, and uh, he has a conversation with uh, Henry Ford II, and he points out, hey, that's the factory. We built all these airplanes, and now we're going to go to war. There's great reaction shots in that scene. How do you decide on those reactions? Do you cut the scene together as a conversation and then go, a reaction would go great here, and then look for a specific reaction? Um, or are you constructing the scene, again, more, more organically than that? I'm actually very proud of that scene because it's basically my first cut. Cut it, and it pretty much stayed that way. So I, that sounds like a whole bunch of patting my own back, but it's a bunch of great actors in the scene, so it, you know, it helps. That that makes my life easier. I love scenes like that because everybody who's got a stake in, in the proceedings is in the room together. And so where I pivot to the reactions is where it seems naturally like where the, the choir would be having a reaction like, what? You know, it's like, you know, when Shelby talks about the folder, and he's, which is a bit of a dress down to Ford. It's like, yeah, Ford's there, but Ford's actually being stoic. He's being essentially kind of the king. But like, you know, he's in there trying to save his job. We know that Iacocca is his backer. He's making a slightly smart ass comment about a folder. And it's like, and Iacocca's like, oh shit. Like, this, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you should be like begging for your job and you're not. I mean, that's kind of the subtext of what's going on. So it heightens this, like for the, you know, for the, for the audience, you're like, uh, how's, how's this strategy going to work? It's just finding the moments that are kind of where, where what Shelby is saying is weighted towards what particular character in the movie, in that scene is important to them. Like when he says, hell, you know, and then he goes on to try to make his point. Like we don't, nothing that we did worked. Right. And it's like, and you, you cut to BB and he's like, well, now that's what I'm saying. You know? right. <laughs> and he, yeah. his, his reaction is like, you're, you're burying yourself. Yeah. And what's great about those reactions is they're, they're throwing the audience off a little bit because none of them are tilting towards like, here's where Shelby's going to turn it. So when Shelby turns it and makes his point, it's actually... He's not setting it up in a traditional way to win this argument. He's coming at it from this kind of odd angle to make his point in the scene. And so then the, a lot of those reactions are sort of burned earlier in the scene and it really does just come into his, his direct connection with Ford. At the moment he says, Enzo is, and he has never seen anybody go that fast, yeah. is where the scene really coalesces to being just, a, just two guys. Right. My feeling was like these guys, like I could have just cut it and just been about him and Ford, but Ford wasn't doing that much in the scene at the top. These guys are all like, they're they're all vested in this endeavor. It sounds like a little bit like that idea that you mentioned earlier of you acting like the audience. As somebody says something in a conversation, I wonder how this guy reacts. We'll be watching scenes together. Drew will be watching my scene. I'll be watching something Drew's cut. You know, John Barry, our visual effects editor, he cut some. He cut a little bit on this movie. He actually got an additional letter of credit on this. And you know, I will often be the one going, "Well, what's the other person thinking? What are they thinking? Like what what you just said. It's like what's what what would that guy's reaction be? I want to know what that guy's reaction would be to that. And that's where I, you know, when I'm cutting a scene, I'm cutting. I I, I like to say I'm cutting it live, meaning like I'm I'm trying to live in the scene as I'm cutting it. I have a hard time going through and looking at dailies and finding what I think are all the best pieces and putting them in a timeline and then trying to figure out the rhythm. Like I have to really cut from the top through as if I'm experiencing the scene. And, uh, you know, I, I've never really talked to other editors about that. Maybe they feel the same way. I, I don't know what, you know, I haven't really had in-depth discussions about it. It's just the way I approach a scene. So Yeah, with Chase stuff, Ray stuff, I've done this felt similarly where you're in a shot for a amount of time and you're like, this is where I want to, cut this is where i want to now where am i going to be yeah well you know and that's and there's a there's there's a good thing about that and there's a bad thing about that the bad thing about it is that because i'm like looking at it in this almost like cutting live thing 
I tend to be slow in my first edits. I t it tends to take me a while because I will just, I'm like, I like this, this piece will be this long and I stick it in and it's like, and I, and I get into this like really rigid kind of like, I'm only going to do this and this and this, you know, this length and this length and this length. And, and I have to remember, it's like, okay, you know what, just throw it in a little long <laughs> and go and find the next piece. And then you'll find your pacing. Don't try to be like perfect with each cut. Even after all these years of cutting, I still sometimes find myself trying to be a perfectionist with the cut because I'm trying to feel the scene at the same time. You're basically playing psychological games on yourself. <laughs> Andrew, your take on that? I've adopted a lot of uh, techniques that Mike has just spoken about because Mike and I've worked together for a long time and uh, Mike has worked with Jim longer than I have and I've kind of come up with Mike, uh, through Mike and, and Jim. I, I assisted Mike on a number of films, earlier films. And so it was just a natural process of like, I would, you know, sort of adopt a lot of his techniques. And I... I think it's, you know, I got to say, though, I think you're better at being looser earlier. I mean, I think that I've watched Drew Cut and he's he's able to get through scenes a little faster in a lot of ways than I am because he's he's not, he tends to not be so rigid in his, in his, in his first, literally his first cuts. And I, when I, I, it's good to go in and watch him sometimes just cut and go, it reminds me, it's like, okay, go in and just relax and like loosen up a little bit. <laughs> I guess that's, I guess, yeah, I guess that is my process. I, I would like to find the, I am loose. And then I will go back and do my second pass where I will find the true rhythm of the scene in the second pass. Is there anything you want to talk about with those scenes that I sent you? I mean, I think the one thing that was interesting about the, you know, this kind of hallmark scene that's been, that really establishes Miles' character is his interaction with this in, this inspector at the beginning of the movie where he's, you know, gets frustrated with them and they have a confrontation. The scene was weighted towards Shelby and Shelby walking through the paddock. And that in as this was happening, what was happening with, Miles was really just background. It was going to be more chatter. It was like, and so Jim decided he needed to write some, uh, essentially an off-screen uh, scene that was a confrontation. And then he, once he wrote it, he liked it a lot and shot it straight up. And that became a that became the scene unto itself. And in, and and what it did was it actually like pivoted the scene towards Miles. So the scene, this that sequence becomes more about Miles than it is about Shelby, and it should be because you're really getting a taste of like a bit of the hothead and his oddities and his his idiosyncrasies and it works very well but it was you know and i didn't know that was the case because all i did was get the i got the i got the scene and i'm like i don't remember this being did they create a new scene and so i actually asked him about it and it's like yeah well no i was going to play it all off screen but i you know i i really liked it so i decided to shoot it so it became a like kind of a a created scene during production yeah do you like to use scene cards up on a wall for an entire movie? Sometimes. It depends on the movie, I think. It does. I mean, I find that, like, with Jim, you know, it, it, it was helpful a little bit in Ford Ferrari. I mean, his other movies are, like, what I call straight arrows. It's like they're, the plotting is, like, following one guy from A to B. And so you can put the cards in the wall, but there's, you're not going to restructure. You'll probably maybe lose scenes, but there's not, like, a need to, like, figure out a different structure. Ford Ferrari was a little different, particularly at the beginning, because we were actually trying... There were some scenes that were shot that we cut out. We restructured a little bit. You know, the challenge at the top of the movie was to really kind of how much... How much uh, pipe did we have to lay for all the other characters before we got into really uh, Miles seeing in the car the GT40 for the first time? And we had to figure that out. So it was helpful there. Movies that deal with memory, movies that deal with multiple characters, movies that deal with complicated plotting and a lot of A-B stories, that's where the cars, the cards become really helpful. Because, you know, you, you find yourself needing to restructure and you want to, like, move things around on the board. So... It depends on the movie. It's a long answer to say exactly what Drew said. Yeah. <laughs> you know, earlier you asked about, you know, oh, if you see a shot that you're like, oh, I have to use this shot somehow. You made me remember there's a moment in the scene where um, uh, Molly uh, drives uh, Miles. The Molly Joyride. The, the Molly, we call it the Molly Joyride, where she's actually driving the car. And the yeah. beginning of the scene... We're behind, we're kind of, the camera's in the back seat and we see them as a two shot. Uh, we're behind them. And she asks him basically, uh, you came home late last night. And then his response was sort of like a, sort of a, yeah, he was like, yeah, as he's, you know, beginning to eat his potato chip. 
And that just, that moment's my favorite moment in that scene because it just really reminded me of like, you know, me in the back seat of a car watching my parents about to have an argument. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is great. Memories. Yes, I just have to use this. And that was, I think, one of the scenes that I was thinking of when I was thinking of scene music that crosses two scenes because I think the music from the previous scene crosses into that scene, right? And it becomes the radio, actually, of the, of the car they're driving. That music became a motif. We used it three times in the movie. Yeah. You mentioned uh, some bookending that uh, got pulled away to turn into a narration earlier in the interview. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what, what happened uh, kind of near the beginning and the end and any reshoots that might have happened or how you, um, how you changed those scenes and, and why? The scene where he talks to Remington in the office, that was shot after the fact because what we were finding was the audiences and testing were loving the movie, but they felt there was an abruptness. There was an abruptness after his death. They felt like, because what, where it went to, we had, we, had, we had multiple sort of variations of ideas that, that, that skewed away from what was originally shot. The scene, the, the, the voiceover that you're talking about earlier in the movie or early in the interview, excuse me, was really, it was, it came right after his death and it was Shelby sitting in a bar like having this kind of real uh, crisis of conscience and like talking to some just stranger because he's had a few drinks and he doesn't know how to like process what's going on. And then he like leaves the bar and he goes back to Shel to, to the hangar and he grabs the, wrench and goes and talks to the kid and it all felt a little confusing and labored and like too on the nose it just didn't feel like it didn't feel like the movie so we abandoned that early and then we started this idea that like you know how do we establish that like what is life without miles for shelby and we had done some intercutting with footage we current we had which was like now it's a year later and he's back at willow springs and it's the willow springs 100 but Carol, but, but Ken's not there. And that was, it was kind of effective, but audiences were a little confused as to like, wait, we're back at, what, what's going on? Why are we back at the beginning of the movie again? That's the way they were interpreting it. Plus they didn't really get the, the emotional space that Shelby was in. So they, we decided, and Jim decided, and the studio decided that we need an extra scene. That's the scene where uh, he has with, with Remington, where they, talk about, you know, fancy words and whatnot and and establish the fact that it's been six months later and that it's and very clearly. So that when he goes and talks to the son, it tees up that scene in a way that, that works and and feels real. It was it just felt the scene with the son and the wrench that that is the final scene of the movie just felt like an abrupt it felt like abrupt without it. So that's a long answer to say that like, you know, how do we make that transition out of his death into into this into this new footage and it just it, there was no way to really come off the kid and go into that new footage right. yeah. and there was no really they, even in the other incarnations there wasn't a way it didn't it was weird to come off the kid I mean the kid is important and the, and Jim reminded us of this as we were trying to find this this transition which is the kid is important to the scene but the movie is not about the kid and the father right the kid this, the movie is about the friend friendship so you know if we suddenly try to pivot and make the, the poignancy based off of the kid, it was going to feel weird. He was right. So we, you know, that's why we, one of the reasons why we didn't end on, on the kid. And, and the hat was kind of a callback to, you know, Willow Springs and their, like, their, their, their kind of prickly relationship, but their respect for each other. And that's, that's how that came about. So the screening, a screening audience before you shot the scene, you know, of selling the two cars at the end to the couple was that an audience felt that it was ending abruptly and you needed to find something to give it some space before. The yeah, they were feeling it was emotionally yeah. abrupt. I mean, they right. weren't, they weren't, look, they weren't saying, hey, I'm feeling emotionally robbed. <laughs> the audience, you know, right. test audiences don't do that. But that's right. what we, that's what we gleaned from what their reaction was because they were just feeling like the movie, it was bizarre. It's like, we were we were in this conundrum. It's like we have a two and a half hour movie, and people are feeling like it's 
too they fast. Want yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I you know. wanted, wait, wait. And we were yeah, like, exactly. wait, you guys want us to make it longer? I've, yeah. I never get that note. Yeah. You know, it's like, never. <laughs> it's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. So, you know, it was like, I mean, it was, a, it was this kind of like mixed bag of reactions. Like, clearly they love the, they love the movie so much they want more. But like, uh, what? What more? You know? So, I mean, then that's where Jim, like, was able to diagnose it come up with this solution and I think that scene works great and it's just seamless to the rest of the movie you know it feels like it's it doesn't feel like a tack on at all no gentlemen thank you so much for your time it was wonderful talking to you great it's great talking to you too great thanks Steve thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast also check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors or read the book Art of the Cut Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guests, Andrew Buckland and Michael McCusker, ACE. I'm Steve Hullfish. If this is a podcast you got something out of, give us a like and a share, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.